It's a pleasure to be among you again this morning. I'm very thankful that a number of years ago, I was introduced to uh, Reverend Bob Smith. I'm thankful that he invited me to preach on a Sunday, and then invited me again. And enough times now that I find it extraordinary that um, I'm privileged to stand here among you again this morning. The bulletin properly indicates that the focus of our attention this morning will be on verses 20 to 23 of Ephesians chapter 1. You'll find that passage on page 1156 of the Pew Bible. And if you don't have a Bible with you, I would encourage you to take the Pew Bible because uh, I believe that would help you as you uh, will, I desire, give attention to uh, the careful treatment that we'll give in a few moments to verses 20 to 23 of Ephesians 1. But let's begin the reading at verse 15. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and the incomparable great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every title that can be given not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Virtually all historians are agreed that there was a man named Jesus who was born somewhere in ancient Palestine. The man gained a following, a sincere following, though it remained numerically small. This Jesus was rejected by the religious leaders of his day, And those religious leaders gained the cooperation of the occupying Roman government to sentence Jesus to death. The method of execution they chose was to crucify Jesus. Non-Romans, only non-Romans, and only the worst of non-Romans could be crucified. If you were a Roman citizen, uh, you could come to the place of being so out of harmony with Roman law that you could be punished, maybe even executed, but not crucified. Crucifixion was only for those people who deserved the slow, agonizing, brutal death of crucifixion. Those historical facts are broadly acknowledged, except for those who are shamelessly skeptical. 
Some people now think it's impossible to have any level of certainty that particular historical events took place. There is a spirit of skepticism that grows and grows in our whole culture, and it sometimes seems to be magnified in academic spheres. The study and the writing of history is a relic of our intellectual past. But I'm going to be, I believe, safe this morning in assuming that those of you who are gathered here with me in this uh, lovely uh, church building this morning in Roanoke, Virginia, I'm going to be safe, I believe, in assuming that we are not hopelessly skeptical. We are agreed that Jesus was crucified by the Romans until he was dead, and then he was put in a grave somewhere in or near ancient Jerusalem. The crucial question should be framed in this way. Did Jesus stay in the grave? It's a record of history. He got in big trouble with the Roman government. He was largely rejected by the religious leaders of his nation. And he was put to death. He was executed on a cross. But did he stay in the grave when he was buried? The gospel writers tell us that the grave site belonged to a wealthy man who donated the grave site so that Jesus' followers could give him a proper burial. But did his life, having been buried, return to life from the grave? Now, it's not correct to assume that Jesus was living in an ancient culture where everyone just believed in the supernatural and people could so easily be be, be convinced that something supernatural had happened. No, there were doubters in Jesus' day. There were skeptics. There was a whole party of Jewish people, a recognized party within the Jewish nation that uh, dismissed uh, miraculous claims. Uh, the Sadducees said uh, that uh, these kinds of things did not happen. Resurrection, a bodily resurrection, never happened. Furthermore, my friends, the collective witness of all four Gospels is that even the close followers of the Lord Jesus did not at the beginning have the strongest, most respectable faith. If we read carefully what each of the four gospel writers tell us, it's clear that Peter and James and John and those men had a measure of faith. They did believe that Jesus was the promised Messiah. They saw some of the miracles or many of the miracles that he reportedly performed. But their faith was not the kind of model of faith that we would want to ourselves to be looking at. No, Peter and James and John were often filled with doubt. It's the reason Luke begins his second volume by saying this, after his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He gave many convincing proofs to them because they needed many convincing proofs to really believe in the resurrection. Now, these closing verses of Ephesians 1 that I've just read come at the conclusion of one of those marvelous recorded prayers of Paul. If you've never done a study of the prayers of the Apostle Paul recorded in his letters, prayers for churches and for individuals, I hope you'll find your way uh, to those passages, and I recommend to you an excellent book by Dr. Don Carson, 
originally it was published uh, with the title A Call to Spiritual Reformation, but a later publication of that Carson book is titled Praying with Paul. And I commend to you that book uh, by Don Carson, and I encourage you to give consideration to these prayers that we have recorded of Paul. But the apostle in this passage is praying that his Gentile friends in Ephesus would experience the power of God, that you may know, look at verse 18, I pray that your eyes may be enlightened and that you may know the riches of of his inheritance, pardon me, verse 19, and his incomparable power for us who believe. I want you to experience something of the power of God. But Paul does not give us a technical or a philosophical description of the power of God. He rather immediately goes to say the power of God, the power of God that was manifested in the resurrection and the exaltation of Christ. You see, Paul sees resurrection and exaltation as a unit. Look at verse 20 again. Which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him in his right hand. It's unthinkable to Paul that Christ would come out of the grave, out of death, be raised from the dead, and would simply hang around here on earth. Uh, That that would be uh, out of harmony with what we would expect. Paul sees resurrection and exaltation as a unified event. And we're going to think this morning together about the exaltation of Christ, as Paul describes it in verses 20 to 23. Three lines of thought. He tells us here the agent of the exaltation. He gives us the extent of the exaltation. And he gives us the purpose of the exaltation. The agent, the extent, the purpose. Well, first of all, then, the agent of the exaltation of Christ, and the agent is God the Father. You have to pick up the link all the way back in verse 17. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you. And all the requests that Paul adds are requests made to God the Father. He is the agent of the exaltation of Christ. Now, I want to give a brief word of explanation about this, and then I want to engage in a little bit of examination of ourselves, those two brief points. Here's the word of explanation. This direct agency of God the Father reminds us, Christian friends, that the salvation that God has provided for people like me and like you is a salvation accomplished by three divine persons. There is a centrality that Christ has in the gospel. He is the divine person that came into the world. He is the divine person that took our nature into union with himself. He's the one who went to the cross. He's the one who took our sins on himself. There is a proper centrality given to Christ. We understand why Paul would say, God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
We understand why Paul would say to the Corinthians, when I came to your pagan city, I purposed to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. But at the same time, there is a form of Jesus-only theology that we ought to avoid. We are the objects of divine love that comes from Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we're not to think that God the Father uh, planned redemption and then folded his hands and has simply been uh, uh, waiting in heavenly passivity. Uh, that's, that's not what Scripture teaches. Now, the Bible makes it very clear that God the Father is directly involved in the application of redemption. If you study carefully what Calvinists call effectual calling, effectual calling, you'll, you'll see from the text, particularly in Paul, that it is God the Father who calls us to himself. He is actively involved in our redemption experience, and uh, this passage reminds us of that. Now, the word of examination, I'm going to frame just as a question. What is your honest response to the truth, the truth of this passage, that God the Father has raised and exalted Jesus Christ to the highest throne of heaven? Now, the reason I ask the question that way is that we are living in a day when more and more people think or say, so God the Father, God has uh, exalted Christ uh, back into heaven. That's okay with me. If God wants to do that, do that, it's his business. Uh, he has his own opinions, uh, but I have mine. And and I don't really have the same opinion about Christ that, Pastor Randy, you say God has about Christ. If you talk to people and listen to them carefully, you'll often hear that kind of sentiment. Now, my friends, at least think about this. Our great problem is that we do not think like God. We do not choose like God. We do not desire as God desires. We do not give priority to that which God gives priority. Our being unlike God is the essence of our rebellion and the reason we need the Christ that this passage is describing. The agent of the exaltation is God the Father. But secondly, verse 21 gives us the extent of the exaltation. Look at verse 21. Far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion. Now, I'm going to define those four words in a moment. Rule, authority, power, dominion. But please note that as Paul describes the exaltation of Christ, it's not an exaltation which only barely came into existence. Note the text. Far above, far above these four kinds of powers. It's not that he's just barely there. He is exalted far above all these powers. Now, what are the powers? They are spiritual powers. 
And if we had time to look at the way Paul uses these terms in other passages, I believe it would become clear that we should understand these four words, rule, authority, power, dominion, to refer to all angelic beings. Paul uses these terms in a variety of ways in other passages, and uh, it, it uh, is clear that we should exclude no spiritual being from this list. In other words, we should think of good and evil spiritual powers. We should think of angels and demons. Christ is exalted over all of them. But I'm persuaded that the emphasis of our text is that Christ is exalted to rule over all evil, demonic, satanic powers. And I have three reasons for that conclusion. Listen carefully. Number one, it's a given that Christ rules over good angels. Uh, Certainly we're not to think that those angels who have not sinned and those angels who in some sense have been confirmed in a righteousness, in a rightness with God, it's, it's obvious that those angels are in submission to Christ. Those spirits that are sent out to minister on behalf of those who will become heirs of salvation, yes, they are in submission to Christ. That's evident. Secondly, the other references in Ephesians to these heavenly powers point to demonic powers. 2-2 speaks of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit that is now at work in those who are disobedient. 3-10 refers to rulers, authorities in the heavenly places, but then Paul spells out in 6-12 that those are the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Christ is the exalted Lord, and he has ultimate authority over all demonic powers. Now, maybe someone is ready to say, okay, Paul, we get your point. Christ really is exalted over those powers. Let's move on to the next point, please, Paul. And the apostle says, now, now wait just a moment. I, I, I don't want to move on just yet. Because look at verse 21 again. Far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion, Now note this, and every title, I think the ESV is better here, every name that is named, not only in the present age, but also to come. Now what's that about? Christ is exalted over every every name, every name that is named in this age or the age to come. What is Paul saying? And I believe what he is saying is this, think of Anything you can possibly think of. Think of individuals. Think of brilliant men and women. Think of the wealthy. Think of the poor. Uh, think of those, think of those who have built empires. Think of Alexander the Great. Think of Nebuchadnezzar. Think of the two wealthy gentlemen who have had much attention in the media recently because with their wealth they had extraordinary machines built and literally went into outer space. Think of anything, any person, any collection of men or things, people or things, 
everything in this age, everything in the age to come. And the apostle says, Christ rules all of them. In other words, he's asking us to consider everything outside of God himself. That's what he means by every name that is named in this age or the age to came to come. It is everything and every person and every being and every collection of people outside of God himself. And the apostle is telling us that Christ rules over all of them. The agent of the exaltation. The extent of the exaltation. But now the purpose. Why is this? And Paul isn't going to give us a comprehensive statement of the purpose, but he's going to give us one crucial aspect of the purpose of this. Verse 22, And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Now, I want to make three observations about what the Apostle says here regarding the purpose of the exaltation being for the good of the church, for the completion of the church, the protection of the church, the ultimate perfection of the church. I I want to make three observations. Number one, Paul's chosen language magnifies the necessary place of the church in the purpose of God. He says the church is Christ's body. Well, lots of discussion about what he means by the church as his body. But remember those words of our Lord in the high priestly prayer of John 17. Listen to it again. All I have is yours and all that you have is mine. And the glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer. But they are still in the world. That's a profound statement. Christ is offering that marvelous prayer to the Father just a few hours before he goes to the cross. And he says, Father, I'm coming back into your presence. I'm leaving this world. But they're staying here. You see, in one sense, in one marvelous sense, Christ's redeeming work has been accomplished And it's been completed when he died on the cross and was raised and ascended back to the right hand of God. But in another sense, my friends, his work has not been completed. There is a great deal more of his work to be done in this world. And depending on what kind of eschatology you entertain, you may have an understanding that there's an extreme amount of work yet to be done. But this is very clear. Whatever our eschatological, whatever our understanding of future things might be, this is clear. The work that he's going to do is going to be done through weak, frail people like me and like you. His mission is not yet completed. And we are vital to that mission being completed. Secondly, Paul's chosen language has created debate among the best of commentators. Now, why do I say that? Well, look at verse 23 again. 
which is his body, the church, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Paul says the church, all the redeemed, you and me, all of our fellow believers, whatever tag they have, whatever kind of building or no building they meet in. I've preached to African churches sitting under banana trees. It's a marvelous experience to preach to African congregations sitting under banana trees. But all of those that Christ has for himself, Paul refers to the church as the fullness of Christ. Now, what does that mean? Let's be clear what it does not mean. It does not mean that in Christ there's something lacking that we provide. In himself, in his person, Jesus Christ is fully God and perfectly man, and he needs nothing for himself from us. But the church is the fullness of Christ in this sense. Christ gives to the church everything we need to carry out the mission that he's given us. There is nothing that we really must have that he doesn't provide. We need knowledge. We need humility. We need power. We need wisdom. We need courage. We need self-denial. We need vision. And what the church most needs, Christ provides. By his word and by his spirit. One more observation about the language Paul uses. Paul's chosen language calls us to engage in some humble discrimination. What do I mean by humble discrimination? Well, look at it again. The church, which is his body. What is that? Is it every, is it every group anywhere who puts up a sign out front and says church? No. No, it's, it's not any and every group that starts together for some reason and, and they put a sign out front with some kind of tag and, and church is in the tag. We can't define the church that broadly. But some of us can be tempted to define the church more narrowly than we should. People like me are expert at defining the church more narrowly than the church should be defined. Well, since I'm preaching to Presbyterians this morning, I'm going to hide in the shadow of Calvin and commend his definition of the church to you. The church of Jesus Christ exists in those gatherings of believers where the word is preached, where the sacraments are properly observed and celebrated, and where there is the exercise of the discipline that Christ has ordained for the church in Matthew 18. Those three things. I believe Calvin was was, uh, hitting the bullseye when when he engaged in careful thought about this. The church is all of those gatherings of people that are committed to the ministry of the word, that are seeking to carry on the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper that Christ ordained for the church, and the church is found in those places where people 
take the word of Christ seriously enough that they engage in principled discipline in their collective experience. Well, I'm almost done. You know, when Bobby Dobbins called me years ago and asked me if I would be interested in preaching here, he said, Randy, the law of the Medes and the Persians, 25 minutes for the sermon. And I, I was able to ask Bobby this morning, is that still the law of the Medes and Persians? And he told me that it's actually been adjusted a bit. But I really am almost done. And I want to end. I want to end with a question, a reminder, and a plea. The question is, do you believe this passage? And I've asked myself that question this week. Christ is ruling over all things. Where, where, I want to read something that was in the bulletin this morning. Ah, the preparation that was given for us to read. O God, the protector of all who trust in you, without whom nothing is strong, nothing is holy, increase and multiply upon us your mercy that with you as our ruler and guide, we may pass through things temporal that we may not lose things eternal. And when I read that this morning, pass through things temporal, that's a lot of stuff to pass through things temporal. It is said that Jonathan Edwards studied 14 hours a day. He was living in a world where he could study 14 hours a day. We're living in a world where our attention is being grabbed and stretched all the time. And we're always getting information about things happening in churches and families and, 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 and small societies and large societies. And, and sometimes the information overload is just too much. And yet, this passage is asking us to believe that in all of that, in everything, Christ is in control. And you know what my response is? Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. I believe, Lord. Help me to believe this more. And then, I'll just, I'll end with this. Maybe a Christian here this morning looks at that passage, maybe you've thought this while I've been speaking, and you think, well, yes, the Lord has been at work in my life. Yes, he's been at work in my life. Uh, I, I see the evidence of him working, but resurrection power? Resurrection power? Whoa, Pastor Randy, I, I'm, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure I've known much of that. Well, if you're a believer in Christ and you're united to Christ in faith, you have known resurrection power that's brought you to believe in Christ. But I want to remind you of this wonderful thing. He's not finished yet with you. He's not done yet. And I'm sure glad he's not done with me yet because I know there's a lot 
that yet needs to be accomplished in this Christian man. And he will accomplish it right up into and including in the final day. Please pray with me.